This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, and welcome to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the courts and the law. I am Dahlia Lithwick. The Supreme Court was back in action this week, hearing cases and watching the cherry blossoms bloom in February. Later on in this show, we're going to talk to Jeff Fisher, whose case before the high court this week, Esquivel-Quintana versus Sessions, raises a whole bunch of important questions about deportation and criminality and deference to federal agencies, all of which are about to become hugely important in the era of Donald Trump. But first, we want to talk a little bit about voting rights, specifically voting rights in the Jeff Sessions Justice Department. And yes, we're going to talk a little about the Jeff Sessions in the Jeff Sessions Justice Department, but let's talk about voting rights first. For years now, the Obama DOJ has been fighting repressive state voter ID laws all around the country, and they've actually racked up some really big wins in the courts. But this past week, suddenly the new Justice Department under Jeff Sessions did an about-face in an important voting rights case in Texas that has been bouncing around the courts for five years. Suddenly, instead of challenging Texas's voter ID law, they were signaling that actually they have no problem with it. And it left lawyers in Texas in the very strange position of not even knowing what the heck is going on in one of the biggest voter ID cases in the country. Joining us today to talk about the sea change at the Civil Rights Division at the Justice Department is Janae Nelson. She's Associate Director Counsel of the NAACP's Legal Defense and Educational Fund. And she's one of the lawyers who represents the challengers to SB 14, this infamous voter ID law in Texas. She was back in court in Corpus Christi to argue this case. And Janae, welcome to Amicus. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Dahlia. And I should start by saying you argued on crutches, correct? (laughs) I argued on a knee scooter, uh, which is, I think, a little bit of an upgrade from crutches. But yes, I have a broken foot at the moment and I was, uh, my mobility is a little limited. Well, thank you for um, joining us. And I want to start by just saying the thing that I think every single listener to this show is thinking, which is, I know you're going to talk about the Justice Department, but let's first talk about Jeff Sessions. Uh, Everyone's eyes are on Jeff Sessions this week, not just because of the voting rights litigation in Texas, but uh, because of a question about his testimony uh, about not having met Russians during the campaign. Now, I know that LDF took strong positions on Sessions during his confirmation hearings, but I want to ask you if this week's revelations about Sessions' testimony and the fact that he may have been less than honest in his testimony is something that LDF is thinking about in a new way uh, in light of what came before at his confirmation hearings. Sure. No, I think what this has done is effectively um, affirm so much of the concerns that we had about Jeff Sessions, starting with his initial nomination and the very reasons that we suggested he really was not fit to be the attorney general. There are many questions about his use of authority, uh, about his integrity, about his honesty, and I think those are all on display uh, when we consider what the current allegations are about his his meeting with the Russian ambassador and his truthfulness with respect to the testimony that he gave 
in his nomination and um, on his questionnaire. You know, it's not the first time that we raised issues about the uh, veracity of data on his questionnaire. He alleged that he played a primary and principal role in a number of civil rights cases, and in fact, he did not. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence to, to show that he really was there only in a titular position, um, and yet he claimed credit for being, you know, in many ways the architect of the civil rights litigation that he thought would give him civil rights bona fides. So this, for us, is just more of the same. Um, it's obviously more damning, and, and uh, it's, it's cumulative, and it shows um, the depth of, of his dishonesty. And uh, for us, I think the, the most immediate concern is that not only does he recuse himself, which he's already done, but that the entire his entire office be recused uh, because they, we believe, are, are tainted in the same way, uh, and also that a special investigation be launched into all of these concerns to see whether he should remain um, the attorney general. And this is probably a good segue into my question about his thumbprint on the Justice Department. I mean, he's only been in office, as he said this week uh, at his press conference. He's only been in office for a few weeks. But holy cow, we've seen some big shifts. And the one I want to talk to you about is this sea change in the approach to the fight uh, against voter ID laws. So let's Explain what the initial violation was. Take us back to 2011. Texas passes this voter ID law. Uh, We can talk about the details if you want. You know, you can use a gun license as ID, but you can't use your student ID. There are folks needing to drive hundreds of miles in order to procure ID. It's clearly impacting, you know, elderly voters, minority voters, poor voters in ways that would seem to be disenfranchising them, right? That's the law. Can you take us through the very, very complicated history of litigation after that law is passed? Sure. So the law was passed in 2011. And at the time, we had in place in this country a really wonderful mechanism under the Voting Rights Act that required certain places with egregious histories of discrimination in voting to have to get preclearance to get approval, basically, from the government before any new voting laws could be put in place. And so Texas, you know, not surprisingly, is one of those jurisdictions that has a really, you know, awful history of racial discrimination in voting, you know, dating as far back as all-white primaries uh, in the 1920s, which is a case that um, Thurgood Marshall litigated, who founded our organization, um, where African Americans were excluded from Democratic primaries. Um, that That is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the discrimination that Texas has engaged in over well over a century. So in this case, uh, when SB 14, which is the voting law that we're challenging, when it was initially passed, Texas had to present it to the Department of Justice and make sure that that law would not put minority voters in a worse position than they already were. So basically, the test is, is this law retrogressive? Is it going to put us backwards, frankly? And the Department of Justice said, yeah, actually, it will. It will because uh, you've now narrowed the types of identification that Texas will accept and you've required certain photo identification that many minorities do not possess, and that would be very difficult for them to possess because they may not have the underlying documentation, they may not have um, the flexible work schedules uh, to be able to go to the various government agencies to get the documentation. They may not actually have the money to pay for the underlying documentation like birth records, et cetera, that will allow them to prove uh, you know, where they were born and, and other details. Uh, and all of this was really new, right? Texans had been voting without incident um, up until that point by just using an identification certificate that the state issued, and they no longer would be able to do that. Um, so SB 14 was not able to go into enforcement because it was shown that it would actually harm voters and harm minority voters in particular. Uh, then you had the really colossal development in 2013, which was the case of Shelby County versus Holder. That was actually a Supreme Court case that struck down this uh, incredible check on our democracy that I described and basically said that 
Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act could no longer be enforced because it was outdated. And that meant that places like Texas had free reign to begin to use the laws that it passed, um, that even if the Department of Justice said were harmful and retrogressive, there was now nothing stopping places like Texas to use those very same laws, even though they knew that they would have a discriminatory impact. And that's exactly what happened in Texas. And it happened in many other states across the country that were now free to engage in discrimination. So Texas began using this law. And of course, we brought a challenge to it along with the Department of Justice, along with many other civil rights groups who are our co-counsel in this case. Um, and one of the lead plaintiffs in this was Representative Mark Vesey from Texas, who was part of the legislative hearings and part of the discussions around SB 14 and knew firsthand that it was enacted with a discriminatory purpose. Now, stop for one second, because I think it's important here to clarify for listeners the difference between Section 2 challenges, which is how you brought this, and Section 5, which is, as you said, gone after Shelby County, because it changes not only what you have to do, but it changes the stakes, right? So can you talk about basically what's left of the Voting Rights Act, Section 2, and how that changes everything you have to do after when you bring this new challenge under Section 2 in 2013? So the difference between Sections 2 and 5 of the Voting Rights Act are, are, are pretty stark. So Section 5 is really a prophylactic measure. It allows anyone to challenge a law that was passed and to ask the government to conduct the analysis of whether that law is going to have a discriminatory impact on minority voters. And Section 5 only covers certain jurisdictions, again, those with a really bad history of racial discrimination in voting or discrimination against language minorities. And, you know, there are other categories that it covers, but effectively that was its primary aim to prevent racial discrimination in voting. Section two, on the other hand, is a way to challenge a law once it is in force. So the damage has already been done. The law has already passed. It's already being implemented. And then you can challenge a law under Section 2 under one of two theories. You can say the law has a discriminatory impact, meaning it actually harms more minority voters than um, majority voters and therefore is unlawful because of its effect. And you can also lodge an intent claim. You can say that not only does it have this impact, but actually it was intended to have that impact. And in this case, with respect to Texas's photo ID law, we lodged both claims. We have evidence that it was intentionally discriminatory, and we have ample evidence of its effect. Um, so Section 5 is not part of this lawsuit uh, it was part of the precursor to this lawsuit, and it also is part of the knowledge that the Texas legislature had going into this, knowing that a federal agency had already found that the law would have a discriminatory effect. Another really key difference between Section 2 and Section 5 is the burden that it places on civil rights groups and, and the litigants in these cases. Section 2 cases are extremely costly. And again, as I pointed out, they happen after the harm has already uh, occurred, where Section 5 is something that involves the government. There is a cost involved to the state, uh, and there is a cost for civil rights groups who monitor these cases and also prosecute them, but it's of a much different scale than a full-out challenge under Section 2, where the plaintiffs bear the burden of proving that there's this discriminatory effect and discriminatory intent. So it's costly, it's time-consuming, and it also doesn't redress the harm uh, often early enough, and elections pass, and people have lost their voting rights irretrievably. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory— Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So 
you all win. The the plaintiffs win in the district court resoundingly. It goes up to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, and the Fifth Circuit decides that, yes, uh, on effect, you're clearly right. They kick it back to the district court for another hearing on this question of intent, right? Did the legislature mean to do this? And before we talk about that, I just want to play a little bit of audio from that Fifth Circuit oral argument all the way back in 2015. Here is the hearing at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and Justice Department lawyer Aaron Flynn arguing against the Texas voter ID law. And and let's just get a sense of what it was like way back in the day when the Justice Department was carrying the water of proving that this law cannot stand. The purpose, um, which could be one part of the purpose, which is racially discriminatory purpose of attempting to minimize um, voting opportunities for African-American and Hispanic voters, given the seismic demographic shift that had occurred in Texas's population over the past 10 years, combined with the fact of extremely racially polarized voting, which meant that any reduction in African... really true on the Hispanic vote? I mean, the most recent election, it was not nearly as polarized as you contend it was in terms of the governor race, for example. It's uncontested, Your Honor, that there's racially polarized voting in every county across Texas. And it's true that the Anglo... So I I would love to hear your thoughts on what it was like after all these years in this litigation to have the Justice Department right next to you saying the same things in the same voice. You know, this law is discriminatory. It has a discriminatory effect. It has a discriminatory intent. And suddenly, effective Monday, the Justice Department under Jeff Sessions withdrawing the claim altogether uh, that Texas had even enacted the law with a discriminatory intent and going further and saying, you know, we shouldn't even really be hearing this litigation because the Texas legislature is passing a new voter ID law. It's going to cure whatever problems uh, existed in the prior one. And as the Justice Department official said at this hearing, uh, it doesn't even make sense because it's a moving landscape. It's a shifting landscape. It doesn't even make sense for the courts uh, to weigh in right now. Yeah, the difference is is stark. Uh, We operated in in partnership with the Department of Justice in prosecuting this claim. Um, We conferred and strategized and um, were all rowing in the same direction toward the enforcement of our civil rights laws. And there was a significant, you know, reversal on Tuesday that um, we think really undermines the confidence uh, in this Department of Justice because it is a, you know, direct uh, retort (laughs) to to what the Department of Justice had been saying uh, all along. So there are many complications with that. I mean, there are are laws that potentially bar uh, parties to litigation from switching positions midstream. And, you know, we, we obviously will consider whether that is what's happening here. But I think what's most important is what it reflects in terms of the change of direction that this Department of Justice has with respect to, you know, protecting our democracy against racial discrimination in elections. And and that couldn't be more critical, um, you know, than any other time, given the false allegations of, of vote rigging and voter fraud and, and how that potentially lays the groundwork for new laws that intimidate voters and that can suppress the minority vote. So we were very disappointed by the Department of Justice's stance in this case. Um, And, uh, you know, we we were in the interesting position of being able to cite back to the court the very strong and um, moving arguments that the Department of Justice had asserted earlier in this case that stood in stark contrast to some of what they were suggesting now. So this leads me inexorably to the question about the scourge of vote fraud, which is the other side of this case, right? And it has new salience because Texas certainly said, oh, you know, we we needed to put uh, this uh, voter ID law into place because the 
vote fraud is so unbelievably problematic. And, you know, you and I may have joked about that a year ago, but now, you know, we have a president who is saying that there were between three and five million illegal votes cast in this presidential election and is making promises, uh, not only about doing an audit, but making promises and, and putting Jeff Sessions in as uh, the attorney general in ways that really speak to this vote fraud thing uh, uh, of which there is no evidence is about to become a lever with which vote suppression really, really goes on to steroids, right, in this administration. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's um, it's interesting because before we changed administrations and we started to hear this reprisal of vote fraud is a justification for all of these heinous laws, I think there was uh, beginning to be a much clearer understanding on the part of at least some parts of the public that this was such a, a bogus cry, that it's an exaggerated claim, that there are still so few instances of impersonation fraud, which is the type of voter fraud that laws like SB 14 uh, try to address, that any laws that impose draconian measures to keep people from uh, voting because of a fear that somehow the election is going to be overtaken by a bunch of imposters uh, who want to wait on long lines on election day to cast a phony vote um, is, is just preposterous. So we were making gains and I think you know, exposing that myth for what it was, for, you know, explaining to folks in very clear terms that you're more likely to get, you know, struck by lightning twice, uh, or you're more likely to win the lottery than you are to uh, witness an instance of voter fraud. Uh, I mean, it really is such a hyped up claim. We presented evidence of this in, in our Texas case that, you know, of, of all the voting that occurred over the course of a decade or so, there were you know, millions of votes and one or two claims of voter fraud and one or two prosecutions. But I think that's a narrative that we're going to have to continue to fight and, and try to combat because, you know, when you have a commander-in-chief who so freely uh, throws about these false allegations without any evidence whatsoever, without without any um, care about the the truthfulness of, of what he's stating uh, and causes this sort of panic and unnecessary fear about the integrity of our elections, um, then we, we really do have an upward battle because we're not dealing in fact, we're dealing in myth, and that's always a, a more challenging landscape. Janae, before I let you go, I want you to talk more broadly, and, and part of this is going to be from your experience at LDF, and part of it is just going to be um, based on kind of a witness to what we're seeing in the courts in the last few months. Am I right to say that your experience uh, at this hearing in Corpus Christi mirrored a lot of what we're seeing in the courts generally in the last uh, few weeks and months, which is that judges are really seemingly more willing, not just in the voter ID context, but certainly after whole women's health in the abortion context, certainly in the Second Amendment context, that judges seem much more willing to pierce pretextual arguments, much more willing to say, I, I don't think that's right. Is that a trend? Am I am I just being hopelessly optimistic or are judges really digging down right now in a way that is maybe new and saying, if you're going to pass crazy laws with pretextual uh, defenses, you better be prepared to show me evidence. Is that a thing? You know, I, I hope you're right. And I, and I do think that there are many instances um, where we're seeing some really excellent judging and a new appreciation for the complexity of discrimination claims across the board. So, so I think you're right. I think there is a, um, a, a growth in understanding of how discrimination operates systemically, uh, how it operates uh, in, in very subtle ways, and um, we're becoming much more sophisticated about our ability to identify it and analyze it and our recognition of it. So, so I do think that, you know, you're not, <laughs> you're not imagining things, that, that, that there is um, some intellectual growth that's occurring, uh, that's responding to our times, and it really could not happen fast enough 
because of the climate that we're in. Um, it's, it's interesting, though, because in some ways we're, we're starting to see much more blatant and, um, you know, unfiltered uh, hatred and, and discrimination um, and utterances. So it's it's an interesting time. Uh, we, we're going to be battling both. Um, I think much more overt instances of discrimination and, and harm to various groups, as well as the, the subtle and systemic um, challenges that we've been engaging in for, for such a long time. And, um, you know, it's, it's going to be an upward battle. But, you know, our courts are really, they've always been in, in many ways a, a checkpoint for us and a way in which to ensure that our democracy does not run amok and does not just shift with the political winds. So I have a great deal of confidence in our judiciary, but really um, they are going to play a a critical and crucial role to keeping us on track uh, in the coming years. Janae Nelson is Associate Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, and she was one of the lawyers in Texas this week challenging SB 14. Janae, thank you very much for joining us this week on Amicus. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. On Monday, the same day that the Justice Department was changing its stance in that Texas voter ID case, the U.S. Supreme Court was taking up another case that also holds all kinds of echoes of what's happening now in America and what may be yet to come. The central issue in Esquivel-Quintana versus Sessions is whether a conviction for consensual sexual intercourse between a 21-year-old and a 17-year-old constitutes the, quote, aggravated felony of sexual abuse of a minor under the Immigration and Nationality Act. If so, it would qualify as a deportable offense for the Mexican immigrant at the center of this case. But as we'll discuss, the answer just isn't as straightforward as you might think. This case actually also raises a host of other questions, technical questions, that oddly enough may offer a preview of what we're going to hear at the Neil Gorsuch confirmation hearings. These are questions about the value of so-called Chevron deference to federal agencies. Joining us to discuss this web of timely issues is Jeff Fisher. He's co-director of Stanford Law School Supreme Court Litigation Clinic, and he represented Juan Esquivel-Quintana in the High Court on Monday. Welcome back to the show, Jeff. Uh, thanks. Always great. Jeff, this is a super easy case, right? I mean, it's completely simple. We have a guy, and he's 20, and he has consensual sex with his 16-year-old girlfriend. And under California law, which is where he lives at the time, this is, quote, an aggravated felony. And it's even simpler because under 8 U.S.C. Section 1101A43, this aggravated felony of sexual abuse of a minor is the basis for removal. So they send him back to Mexico. Easy, right? No, oh, okay. uh, I, I, I have to disagree with you on that. Uh, you know, as, as you, I think, tongue-in-cheek suggested, there are a lot of uh, legal layers to the case. And so maybe if I give you a couple of overall uh, guideposts, that'll help our conversation. Okay. Um, uh, under the Immigration National Nationality Act, otherwise known as the INA, uh, people who are lawfully in the country, and I think that's an important thing for the listeners to understand, that we're talking here about people who are lawful permanent residents or otherwise lawfully in the country. We're not talking about undocumented people here. But if they're lawfully in the country but are not yet a citizen and they're convicted of a serious crime, they can be deported. And the INA lists a handful of what it views as the most serious crimes, things called aggravated felonies. Uh, and in the first sub-provision of that law are the crimes murder, rape, and sexual abuse of a minor. And so the question in this case is whether his California conviction for statutory rape, uh, which, as you said, um, arises from consensual sex that we deem to be a crime because of the age of the younger partner, um, constitutes sexual abuse of a minor uh, and therefore uh, subjects him to automatic deportation without even the opportunity to uh, argue that uh, he ought to be allowed to stay in the country. And let's be clear, in California, the age is 18, but that's an outlier, correct? Correct. 
Right. If you look across the states, the typical age of consent for purposes of statutory rape laws is 16. So anytime you're having uh, sexual relations with somebody that's 16 or older, uh, typically across the country, that is perfectly legal and is the same under federal law. Uh, But California is one of seven states that have a particularly high age of consent at 18. So in California, someone who is just shy of 18 uh, having sexual relations with somebody who is 21 uh, is a crime in the state of California. Uh, So at its core, that's what this case is about, is about whether California and the six other states, there are seven total, uh, whether uh, people who are convicted under those very expansive statutory rape laws uh, have committed the aggravated felony of sexual abuse of a minor. Okay, now let's add this wrinkle. You're right. My, my questioning was totally fatuous because it gets more complicated because your client moves to Michigan. Right. Well, that's how the case that's how we have a case. Um, he was living in California after the conviction uh, with no incident because the local federal court in California had said that uh, violating this California statute does not constitute sexual abuse of a minor. Um, but he moved at one point to Michigan to be closer to some family members. At that point, he was picked up by the federal authorities and charged uh, with Uh, being deportable uh, on the ground of committing sexual abuse of a minor. And what the federal uh, government argued was uh, that the local court in Michigan should ignore uh, or uh, refuse to follow um, the law out in California and hold that the federal statute was violated here. And that's indeed what the courts held, uh, the first the immigration courts and then the federal courts. And so that's how we landed in the U.S. Supreme Court was this situation, which the court deals with a lot, uh, where different federal courts of appeals have come to different conclusions on federal law. But uh, for the reason you said, Dolly, it's particularly uh, poignant in this case because you have a single individual who was subject to two different federal regimes, and we have to figure out which one is correct. Okay, so this is going to be my uh, seamless segue to Chevron uh, deference, Jeff, because I think that at the heart of this case is this very, very complicated notion about when and how we defer to an agency's interpretation of its own rules. Can you just, for those of us who uh, did not go to law school, explain the principle and then how it's reflected in this appeal? Sure. So Chevron is the shorthand that lawyers use to talk about uh, deferring to the to the view of a federal agency on what federal law means. Chevron was just the title of a case in the 80s where the Supreme Court really announced and crystallized this doctrine. Uh, but the idea is, is that you start in any federal statutory case with what Congress said uh, when it passed the legislation and that hopefully in most cases, uh, just simply reading that statute and construing it in the ordinary ways will give you a clear answer. Uh, but what Chevron holds is that in situations where Congress has not given a clear answer, or sometimes it's intentionally kind of kicked the can down the road to the agency. So, for example, um, Congress might say you shouldn't pollute waterways uh, with mercury, but then leave it up to the EPA to announce how many parts per billion of mercury is too much. Um, So in all those areas where Congress is either explicitly or implicitly through general laws uh, delegated to agencies the authority to engage in Uh, administrative lawmaking, the Supreme Court has held that as long as the agency adopts a reasonable view of the federal statute or what Congress would have intended, that the courts will defer to that. And while that started out as a kind of small and uncontroversial principle, um, when the court announced it in the 80s, it has grown in significance, uh, both as a matter of law, because courts are more and more over the years have been deferring to federal agencies and in terms of our politics because the way that lawmaking has uh, changed in this country in recent years is the agencies are more and more uh, on the forefront of very important uh, regulatory lawmaking on very salient issues of public concern. So for all those reasons, um, lawyers and you know, many people beyond uh, just the bar now are starting to pay a lot of attention to this Chevron doctrine and what it means and whether it's valid. And why is this an issue uh, before the court this week? I mean, it seems as though, and this is why I asked the initial question the way I did, look, we have to defer, right? The immigration statute says what it says, and uh, judges need to stand back and let that be. 
Right. So the reason this Chevron is implicated, potentially at least in this case, is because uh, this case started in the administrative agency and culminated in that process with what's known as the Board of Immigration Appeals, which is the executive branch's agency for deciding immigration cases. And the Board of Immigration Appeals, as I think I noted earlier, held that uh, the statute here was ambiguous uh, and that it therefore had the authority to construe it broadly to cover the California conviction we've been talking about. And so what the federal government now argues in the Supreme Court uh, is that the court ought to defer uh, to the BIA's view that sexual abuse of a minor is a broad term that covers even expansive statutory rape offenses. Uh, So that's the way the issue gets put in front of the court. Uh, And I'll just sketch out quickly, if you'd like, what our response to that is. Uh, our response in this in this particular case is not to uh, attack the Chevron doctrine entirely, but to say for two reasons in this particular case it shouldn't apply. And one reason is um, because the INA provision at issue here that renders, um, in the government's view, my client deportable is also a statute that is invoked uh, in certain ways in criminal cases. And we say that uh, the idea of deferring to an agency certainly shouldn't kick into play when you're also construing something that's a criminal law with criminal consequences uh, for various reasons. And we secondly point out that even if you're just talking about the immigration consequences, they're so severe for people and sometimes more important than a criminal conviction, more devastating than a criminal conviction, uh, that an agency should not get the benefit of the doubt in that context. Rather, if there's an ambiguous statute, we should give the non-citizen the benefit of the doubt. So that's kind of how the issue gets teed up for the court and maybe boiled down to its essence. The question is whether the court and some justices want to use this case to take a first step in terms of uh, limiting the scope in which Chevron applies. So I want to play for you on that very point. Here's some audio of Justice Sam Alito just asking you directly if your plan here is to gut Chevron. Let's listen. Well, suppose that there were no, uh, that the definition here, uh, the, the phrase here had no criminal application. So it applies purely in immigration, okay? Uh-huh. Uh, and you're not asking us to overrule Chevron. No, no, no. All right. So why wouldn't... Yeah. So, so, Jeff, uh, we just heard you say, no, 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 no. It's not that. Uh, is that exactly uh, the example of what uh, you were sketching out right there, which is the court is asking you, is this the opportunity to begin to, you know, pull the plug on Chevron? And you're saying, no, you don't have to do that here. Frankly, I didn't expect to get a question suggesting that I was asking for something quite that big uh, because I wasn't. So what I told the court later is, no, all I'm asking for is a, is, a, is a slight limitation on Chevron, or if you will, look at it from the other direction, perhaps a slight exception. Uh, but I think the fact that he asked that question, uh, and I think it was the second or third question of the oral argument, uh, so they got right to that, uh, shows that this is an issue very much on the forefront of the justices' minds uh, right now. Jeff, I want to play a little bit of the colloquy between Justice Elena Kagan and the Solicitor General's office in this oral argument where Justice Kagan makes the point that not only is the California version of this law incredibly harsh and punitive, but that it's also a a huge outlier. It does not reflect uh, a consensus among the states about the age of consent and statutory rape. And I think the point she's making is you don't pick the most punitive law as your baseline. Let's have a listen. You're saying that it would be uh, the, the clearly better reading to go to, to say, notwithstanding the federal statute, notwithstanding 30-plus state statutes, notwithstanding the model penal code, we just know that when somebody talks about sexual abuse of a minor, they're talking about uh, uh, age 18 with a three-year differential. So I think I would just step back to say that when this court is giving content to the federal provision at the first step of the categorical approach, it is engaging in a normal case of statutory interpretation, which brings to well, bear all of the normal Well, I'm asking about normal, normal statutory sure. interpretation. So normally the normal court- statutory interpretation get you to think that out of, like, uh, uh, out of our heads pops 18 plus a 
three-year differential. I see. So now you're asking about the board's looking at, as opposed to looking at 30 plus states, the model penal code and the federal statute, which all define it differently. So, Jeff, am I right that this goes to one of your fundamental arguments, which is when you're talking about life and death, deportation decisions, you don't pick the one state test uh, that is the strictest test and use it as the marker for deportability across the boards? Well, what our view is, and I and it's just built on the court's own prior cases dealing with other crimes that the court has considered as to whether they render people deportable is if Congress doesn't give a clear definition of the crime that it's intending to cover, uh, what you do is you look at how that crime is typically defined across the country. And so what the court has done in the past is look for a consensus among the states and federal government as to the ordinary elements of something like burglary or robbery uh, or the or the like. Uh, and so what we said here is, uh, yes, uh, statutory rape might fall within the umbrella of sexual abuse of a minor, but you'd have to do that in a way that uses the ordinary elements of statutory rape. And in a state like California, that is such an outlier, uh, a statutory rape conviction, at least under this particular provision, uh, shouldn't subject somebody to automatic deportation. And then the last bit of audio I want to play, just because we have to play Justice Kennedy on every episode. uh, (laughs) But here's Justice Kennedy, I think, trying to make the point that some kinds of Chevron deference are different than others. I can understand Chevron in the context of an agency that has special expertise in uh, regulating the environment or the forest service or fisheries or nuclear power. Why why does the INS have any expertise in determining the meaning of a criminal statute? So, first of all, Justice Kennedy, I think it's important to orient ourselves around the fact... What does that signal to you, Jeff, about where Justice Kennedy's head might be in terms of whether this Chevron question is at the heart of this case and what he wants to do about it? Well, if you can read the tea leaves from that, it seems to be, Justice Kennedy seems to be saying that he thinks that Chevron shouldn't be quite as expansive as some other people do. And Chevron ought to be limited to really what its roots were, which is the notion that sometimes the law is ambiguous and the court would reasonably defer to an expert agency. Uh, But what's happened over the years is, uh, you know, many other courts and many other uh, scholars have propounded a much broader view that the agency uh, always gets to push the law to its outer boundaries, even if it's not relying on any particular expertise. And I think what it tells you about what Justice Kennedy might be thinking here and what many judges and justices have started to argue, and particularly on the more conservative side of the spectrum, is that at a certain point, uh, courts are just as well equipped, if not better, to decide what federal law means. And so, yes, we'll defer to an agency if it's using some special expertise that the court doesn't have. But if all you're doing is giving the best reading of statutory terms or looking at legislative history or looking at consequences across the law, courts are better equipped and, um, you know, arguably more justified under our constitutional system in making those determinations than agencies are. And I guess I have to ask you, all this happens against a backdrop of a new administration coming in and saying, one of the things we can promise is that we're going to step up uh, deportation, especially for people with criminal convictions. How much is that on the court's mind this week as they're listening to you talk about a case that obviously isn't specifically about that, but certainly inflects intensely on that? That, you know, that's a great question and a hard one to answer. And, you know, when you gave the case name at the top, it started out as Esquivel-Quintana versus Lynch. It's mm-hmm. now Esquivel-Quintana versus Sessions. It's the same case with the same arguments from the government. And so the Trump administration is not saying anything different than the Obama administration had said on this particular issue. So you might say to yourself, oh, you know, current politics has nothing to do with it. It's just a case with the government against a non-citizen. Uh, but At the same time, you can't help but wonder whether the court will be influenced in this case, like so many others, uh, by by changing politics. And particularly when it thinks about whether it ought to be deferring to the government in various ways, uh, one would expect that would be influenced 
uh, bide their confidence in the government and its work and its judgment and its operations. And so if the government's going to change policy and in various ways, uh, the court's going to ask itself, do we agree with that change in policy? Do we think it's well considered? Uh, do we think we uh, ought to be deferring to it uh, or not? And I think that's going to be in the background. I wouldn't pretend to guess precisely how to play out in this particular case, though. But you did say something interesting when we started talking about uh, Chevron and the kind of erosion of Chevron, you said that a lot of that criticism was coming principally from uh, the legal right. And I wonder if Mm -hmm. now what we're going to hear is that as we have more doubts about, you know, how the EPA uh, interprets its own regs, how uh, government entities interpret their own regs, this is going to start to be a war in which the left takes up arms. Well, I think that's going to be fascinating to watch. Uh, Until the election, uh, I think it is fair to say you had a rising tide from the right against the notion of agency deference. Uh, And in part, that was because of uh, many of the Obama administration's most important uh, and significant policies were coming out of the administrative state rather than out of Congress. And so, you know, if you were looking at outcomes from a conservative point of view, you'd say you want to limit the power of agencies. Now, uh, the politics have changed and the uh, Republicans obviously own the administrative state, so to speak, right now. Uh, And so I think it'll be interesting to watch and see whether um, whether the right uh, decides to dial back its criticism here uh, or whether the left, which was largely uh, standing up defending Chevron, uh, starts to take a different view. I mean, the shoes on not only on one side's other foot, it's on (laughs) Here's a terrible metaphor on both sides, other feet, whatever. <laughs> and that's got to be really hard uh, so, to walk in. Yeah, I yeah. mean, then, yeah, so we're just, it's just a big mess. Uh, so, so I think it will be interesting. And I think the last thing I should add, just in fairness, is that, um, that you can't, even before the election, and, 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 and since the same is true after, you can't paint with a broad brush in terms of politics and Chevron because um, Justice Scalia was a big defender of Chevron, for example, whereas Justice Thomas is a big critic. And you could pick people on the left and uh, divide them up that way as well. So, uh, so it really is one of these points where at least I would say as a lawyer and as a law professor, uh, you hope people will just sit down and put their thinking cap on and think about it in terms of a neutral principle. What is the best governmental system and judicial system we can have? Not, you know, what is the best uh, set of uh, rules to get me the best outcomes for the next two or three years? So that leads to my last question, which is we're headed into a Neil Gorsuch confirmation hearing. And one of the things on which he has been incredibly outspoken is his feeling about uh, Chevron deference. And uh, I think he aligns with those who think that it's a huge error. And I think I've got, you know, quotes from him saying Pretty openly, quote, Chevron allows executive bureaucracies to swallow huge amounts of core judicial and legislative power. Quote, in a world without Chevron, very little would change except perhaps the most important things. Uh, He is a fan of kneecapping Chevron. Help our listeners locate this, both in terms of how they want to think about this dialogue that's going to, I think, be a big part of his hearings. Uh, Where is Gorsuch in terms of thinking about these issues? And, you know, you've said now Justice Scalia and Thomas take actually very different postures on this. Help us understand where Gorsuch is on this Chevron revolution. Well, as you just said, I, I Judge Gorsuch wrote an opinion last summer uh, calling for courts to, uh, I think, as he put it, uh, you know, take on the behemoth. <laughs> uh, so he is extremely skeptical, if not outright hostile, to the idea of Chevron deference across the board. Uh, and in fact, you know, I have no idea of knowing, but when Justice Alito said, are you asking to overrule Chevron? I mean, that's what Judge Gorsuch has suggested, not 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 us in this case. So, um it is a potentially very, very significant step. And I think probably the easiest way to think about it, if he got on the court and if he could bring others around to that view, is that it really is, in the end of the day, a question about where you want uh, lawmaking power to reside. Uh, do you want it to be squarely and solely in the judicial branch when it comes to interpreting federal statutes? Or do you think that sometimes the federal judge 
who confronts a question that maybe he or she doesn't have a lot of experience or familiarity with ought to defer to a well-considered agency view on that issue. Uh, That's the argument in broad terms. And then if you think, oh, maybe sometimes we ought to defer uh, as a federal judiciary, uh, then you get into the more fine-grained questions like we have in Esquivel-Quintana, which is maybe deference is a good idea sometimes, but in other situations, uh, it, it tramples other values that we might have about the way government ought to work or the way the judiciary ought to function. And is it fair to say that it's very difficult for someone who takes the position that we need to have a more uh, active and more uh, engaged judicial branch, that it's going to be awfully hard to then talk about balls and strikes, judicial humility, a sort of limited role for the judicial branch? I mean, it does open up Judge Gorsuch to a lot of questions about are these fundamentally the same values that someone you know, would hold if they say judges should do as little as possible most of the time. Yeah, I think, well, two things. First is uh, the two are not incompatible, at least in terms of the playing field right now. Many people hold uh, views uh, that, that counsel towards uh, strong judicial muscle in the statutory realm, uh, whereas sitting back and uh, being much more passive when you come to constitutional issues. So there's nothing, at least uh, in the world that we live in right now, that that requires one person to be consistent across both those lines. But obviously, it's a fair inquiry uh, for Judge Gorsuch or for anybody else to say, uh, you seem to be propounding on the statutory side a very robust uh, role for the courts to play. Uh, and on the constitutional side, uh, maybe not so much. And how do you fit those things together? So I think it's a important uh, question to explore um, at his hearings, among obviously many others. Jeff Fisher is co-director of Stanford Law School Supreme Court litigation. He argued Esquivel-Quintana this week at the U.S. Supreme Court. And it is always a pleasure to have you on the show, Jeff. Thank you for being with us. Thanks. I hope it was helpful. And that is going to do it for this week's episode of Amicus. We are eager, as always, to hear your thoughts and feedback. You can email us at amicus at slate.com, or you can leave a comment for us at Facebook. You'll find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. And please don't forget, if you haven't already left an iTunes review of the show, it's such a great way to help folks who don't know about this podcast find out about the show. For those of you who already know about the show, you should know that past episodes are available for free on our show page, that's slate.com slash amicus. Big thanks to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities for use of their studios to record our show. Our producer is Tony Field. Camille Mott is our intern. And Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. Andy Bowers is Chief Content Officer of Panoply, the network that Amicus calls home. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. Thank you for joining us. We will be back with you in a couple of weeks with another edition of Amicus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.